Wow, I did not want to preach on this passage this week. If I was given the choice, I would not have, but I was not given the choice. So here we go. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Could you say that a little louder? Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. Every once in a while, I will meet someone who shares with me that even though they are not religious, they really appreciate the teachings of Jesus. Even though they don't believe as I do, they think Jesus was a very good ethical teacher. And I can only assume they did not have in mind the teachings from today's reading here in the middle of the section of the Sermon on the Mount because things were going so well. Jesus was blessing peacemakers and meek people. We were rejoicing in this good life. Last week, we were invited to imagine ourselves in the significant but modest role of salt and life where God invites us into the work of redemption of all things. What happened? If you're looking for a moral code to follow, these are pretty rough. I'm guessing you might have sensed a bit of measuring up when hearing this reading. Wick leaned over and said, am I subject to hellfire upon the, if you call your sister a name, comment? Or perhaps just dismissiveness is what you felt. After all, you might have from time to time sworn to do something. And I ventured that some of us, perhaps in the range of 100%, in this church, love someone who is divorced, is a child of divorced, is a married divorced person, or is divorced yourself. I'm also guessing that thankfully, you are not reading this passage literally. At least the men aren't, because you have all of your eyes and all of your arms. I want to affirm you in this. This was correct. You were correct. So what do we do with these words of Jesus, these teachings which are not only difficult, but actually kind of feel impossible to put into practice? Today we're listening to Jesus challenge our misconceptions about what this Jesus-centered life is that we have chosen to live. Last week, you might have remembered that the very end of the gospel passage was that Jesus says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's sort of the framework for how we enter into what we're hearing today, because we get to see what that actually means. And if you're thinking, awesome. We're going to finally ease up on all this really harsh stuff from the Old Testament, all these things that Jews have to endure. Boy, are we surprised. Instead, we meet a Jesus who starts here and goes way, way off into the distance of these interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. As an ethics program, want to say this isn't a great one, but I think that's just it. Jesus wants to hear that ethical frameworks, sets of rules, skating along the surface of God's intention, it actually will never get us to the life of love that we're invited into. It's actually been true all along in the Hebrew Bible as well. 
Is not this fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah about their own traditions and rituals and laws. This sounds a lot like Jesus. So if you're looking today or you're here because you're trying to find a behavior modification program to make you more moral, this is not the right place. Jesus is actually interested in the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter. We would need to spend a lot of time unpacking each of these sayings that Randall offered up to us today, each of these, you have heard it said. So today I just wanna focus on two of them, two of these, you have heard sayings more closely or two sections of them. You have heard it said that it was as it was in the ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Uh, I just want to quick straw poll. Who here is against murder? <clears throat> against murder? And, okay, just check in there in the back. Um, I'm assuming Otto is also against murder. Yes, Amos is as well. Um, great. I'm glad we're on the same page. How about getting angry? I was angry three times today in adult education, preaching about uh, or talking about immigration, just three times in the last hour. So next, Jesus goes on to warn about insults. Someone comes to the temple in Jerusalem and hasn't resolved their quarrels at home. They should put down their sacrifice at the temple, travel four days back to Galilee, make up, and then travel four days back to Jerusalem. Okay. So what's going on here? This week, I thought about a friend of mine um, who had this Lenten discipline that helped me understand what I think Jesus is up to here. My friend gave up non-biodegradable trash for Lent. Like she could, you know, orange peels were fine, but anything else, she gave it up for Lent. If she did produce any trash, which she knew she would, she had to carry it with her in a trash bag for the whole of Lent, everywhere she went. On the very first day of Lent, um, she went to a faculty meeting and had a cup of coffee. It was reflexive. This is what you do in meetings. You just pick up a cup of coffee and you drink. She looked down and realized in that moment, she would be seeing a lot of that cup over the next six weeks. And faithfully, when I saw her in class, she had carried a trash bag with that cup in it for the next six weeks. And I suspect Jesus has something like this in mind when he's talking about anger and insults. Because not murdering people is a pretty low bar for community life. But the reason murder is prohibited is because it's the culmination, the very apex of tearing apart human community. It's the top level of destruction of our common life. But what about all the trash we pick up along the way? the way that our words and our actions bruise and beat at our relationships. And without realizing it, we might have accumulated a whole trash dump that we've forgotten about. 
so you don't murder anyone today? So what, Jesus said. We're ready to live into the fullness of that commandment, to make a life where we unpack our anger, to attend to the things that bring life, to forgive each other. If we want to bear witness to a world where prisoners are set free, where we keep each other safe, where we no longer depend on lethal force to protect us, that actually has to start here. We have to take it seriously here among us. Let's keep going. Jesus magnifies a second command. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then Jesus offers a command prohibiting a man to divorce his wife. I think we all know the command that's being amplified here. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male and female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And we might notice something that those two have in common. Women, wives, are the subject of men's actions. Both Moses and Jesus acknowledge this reality about their world. Men have the power in economic, social, and marital relationships, and men exercise the majority of control over women's lives in both of these settings. Rather than pretending that this is a two-way street, Jesus names that women are in a position of social vulnerability. For a woman to be caught in adultery was a vastly different experience than it was for men. Some of you may remember the story of a woman who's caught in an, an adultery and is brought to Jesus for judgment and execution. Who is missing from that judgment? Where's the guy? They were caught, right? The Torah is very clear about this. Both of them need to come for judgment. But that man is nowhere in sight. And you may also remember what Jesus tells the crowds. Let the, let the one who has not sinned cast the first stone. Women at Jesus' time lived in a world of extreme social vulnerability. And at this time, there's actually this fierce debate raging in the Jewish community about the conditions under which a man can claim divorce over a woman. Jewish women could not um, issue decrees of divorce against men. One of those debated conditions was if she burned bread or spoiled meat. Jesus' words describe going after a woman in order to have sex with her, taking possession of her. We miss this in the English translation, but we read in this teaching that women in this position are made victims of adultery. You make her a victim of adultery is what Jesus says. Jesus seems to know that he lives in a world where there will be very few consequences for men in these situations. But for women in the first and second century, the results are catastrophic. Remember Jesus's mother, Mary, when she is found pregnant before she's married? We live in a different world, but a world where the social vulnerability of women still exists. It is still very much a reality in our world. 
And instead of parsing out as his contemporaries were doing these infractions, which might create a legal avenue for divorce, instead of narrowing in on which particular acts um, decide who what is what is adulterous and what is not, Jesus once again talks to the heart of the matter. What are the forms of power that rule our relationships? How does that power work itself out along lines of gender in our relationships? How does that make one party more vulnerable economically and socially when one partner has more social power than the other? Jesus calls his men disciples to enact right relationships that refuse the forms of sub subjugation and discrimination in our world. And he calls us to that today. That happens in our big community, but Jesus says it also happens in our intimate relationships. Once again, we can bear witness to a world where there is no slave or free, no Jew or Greek, male or female, because we continue to undo patriarchal power that works across our relationships and in our community at large. A few years ago, um, I was in Tucson and I visited the Saguaro National Park. I think you would likely recognize the ca these cactuses. They look like this. They're like these aliens in the desert with long arms and torsos. But it was only later that I learned that all of these swirls are connected by this massive root system underneath our feet. It was actually a carpet beneath the desert, so deeply intertwined that you could walk on it and it wouldn't and you wouldn't fall through. Even one of the cactuses to be cut down or ripped out, as cactus poachers will do from time to time, the whole rest of the field suffered. One interaction impacted the others. One cactus can harm others or help them flourish. Jesus looks at the debates raging around him, around parameters for men to divorce their wives. When Jesus watches his people tearing one another apart with words, but proud that they haven't killed each other, he asks them to stop. How are the roots of our lives interconnected? How does power, especially patriarchal power, thwart the vision of God's redemption that we want to live out now? Here, bearing witness to what is possible for everyone. In what ways do we need to deepen rather than turn away from God's command? Not out of shame or to justify ourselves as rule keepers, but because we know we have been invited to a new world. We've been invited to a new life for ourselves and for one another. Amen.